Louise. Hello, Caroline. Hello, welcome back. We're now recording episode seven. I hope it's episode seven. Oh, good point. It might not be at all. <laughs> Let's call it seven and it'll be it'll be fine. It doesn't really make any difference. <laughs> it's another amazing woman. And in this case, we are going to be doing two women, um, which I, it's not. A, I'm not setting a precedent because you already did three women. Yeah, I did a hat trick. What would a two be? Doubler, double uh, drop. A, should we call it a duet? Why not? A duet, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Excellent. Uh, so um, we just recorded episode six or whatever number it was before this one, just before uh, we've had a little wine break. And I don't know about you, but I'm just ready to get straight into this one. What do you think? Dive right in. Excellent. So this episode, we are going to be visiting 1930s China. Oh, I like the sound of this. Mm. So I'm going to set the scene for you before we get into the two women that I want to talk to you about today. So when you think 1930s China, is there anything comes to mind straight away? Let's have a think. So it's before the Second World War, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I guess I'm thinking of Manchuria. I'm thinking of mm -hmm. the Japanese invasion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all that sort of time that we're going to be sort of going to. It's a time, there's a lot of Chinese people living in poverty. Um, there's sort of disease and then it's before all of the big um, cultural revolution time, but it's it's not far away from all that. So there's a lot of turmoil in China at, around this time. So 1931. You have, up until this point, you've had two years of drought. And then in 1931, you have major flooding. Have you ever heard of this huge amount of flooding that happened in 1931? It's Yeah, it is familiar. I think so. Yeah, it's really famous because there are three major rivers in China that basically go the full width of China. And in this one particular year in 1931... All three of them flooded at the same time. And this meant that there was a huge amount of land underwater and an area of land under several feet of water that is the size of the whole of England and half of Scotland, all underwater. And there was a huge famine because of that, wasn't there? Yes, exactly. People were suddenly homeless. Um, 53 million people were affected and they reckon 4 million people died in China that year. It was huge. Wow. Yeah, it was a dreadful time. So you had refugees fleeing to the city of Wuhan. You might have heard of Wuhan, Wuhan. in the news recently. <laughs> Topical. Yes, indeed. Um, and that was a really central city around this time. So you had um, an area of 32 square miles in this city becomes under several feet of water for almost three months. So all the people that have fled from the countryside to Wuhan then are also all the, the people that are living there and the refugees that have gone there, all homeless, all just living on any high point they can find. They're starving, they're living on roofs. Um, there's some dreadful pictures from this time. Of course, disease is spreading, um, starvation. And seemingly, so many hundreds of thousands of people were homeless and starving. People were eating tree bark and earth just to stay alive. And seemingly some people killed their children and ate them. Oh, man. 
things yeah. were bad. Yeah, it was really bad. So, what's the um, technical term for that? Like when you hmm. when you eat your own. You mean like not matricide or fratricide, but like yeah, I'm sure there's a word for it. I have no idea. Let's call it kiddie side. <laughs> I'm sure that's not it. <laughs> um, anyway, I shouldn't laugh. It's dreadful, but um, seemingly that it supposedly did happen. Um, then a few years later, so, you know, it takes the country a good while to recover from this. Four million people have died. And then seven years later, in 1938, this is when the Japanese are invading, like you mentioned. And mm. they're about to capture the city, Wuhan, which would have, it kind of would have meant the end of the war in a way, because um, the Chinese would have had to give up. Wuhan was this sort of quite... It was a crossroads place, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but... it's a strategic important place i guess um yeah so the chinese government wanted to cut the japanese off and stop them from getting to wuhan and they'd recently seen the devastation possible when these rivers flood so at this point they, they decided flooded their own rivers yes they did yes yeah. yes they did they decided to deliberately flood the yellow river to stop the japanese from crossing yeah. and at, at this point more people die more like I think another 800,000 or something like that die um including their own people of course not just Japanese soldiers so yeah. this is a rough decade in China um so the two women that I'm going to be talking about today are women who championed the Chinese and went to China or were in China and helped unfortunately they're not Chinese they are Western women that I'm going to be talking about um, but they really did try to break down barriers and try to help these Chinese people so I think their stories are worth talking about mm. um, I especially like them because one of these women was told that she wasn't good enough to achieve what she wanted to do and then she did and she went on to have a Hollywood film made about her which is Ace and then the second one won the Nobel Prize in literature relating to this and I bet you've never heard of her are you intrigued uh, I, yeah I, I'm racking my brains already thinking oh wait surely <laughs> surely I know this right so I'm gonna do uh, the Nobel Prize won second. So the first woman is Gladys Aylward. Now, I might have told you a bit about Gladys Aylward before. Does it ring any bells? Gladys Aylward. A-Y-L-W-A-R-D. No. Okay, great. So it's a new story to you, which is great. This, I actually read a book about her when I was about... 12 I think um, I can still picture the paperback book it's really 60 it had a really 60s cover um, and it's because it was turned into a Hollywood film around the same time um, so that's how I first heard about her and it was only recently that I remembered about her so and that was when you were 12 yeah and I haven't really thought about her since then until recently so I'm going to tell you about her she's British so Gladys bless her and mm -hmm. it, she's quite uh, it's nice to do someone who is not from a rich privileged educated background um she was from north london from a poor family she was a housemaid and she was born in 1902 okay so when she's uh about about 20 i think um working as a housemaid she goes, she's religious, as a lot of people were back then. And she went to a meeting, a religious meeting in London. 
And she heard a story from a, a missionary or a pastor or someone like that about the situation in China. Oh, she, no, she must have been a bit older than 20 because it's around this time when they're having these floods. So 1931. So I guess she would have been nearer 30. Okay. So she hears the story of this and she genuinely feels that what they call the calling. I mean, I can't imagine how that must feel, but I've never felt it. But she feels the calling to go to China as a missionary. So this is the point at which everybody tunes out because they're like, oh, no, it's a, we're talking about a missionary. <laughs> but it's, it's a really interesting story. Trust me. Stay with me, guys. So she's like, right, yeah, I'm definitely signing up for this. This is where I need to be. This, this is my destiny. And so she signs up for three months of training to become a Chinese missionary. And she has to learn Chinese. Now, she's a housemaid from North London. I mean, so she's in three months. Yeah. In three months, you have to learn Chinese. <laughs> Chinese, yeah. Have you ever tried to learn Chinese, guys? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's nightmarishly. I mean, you've obviously, you're, you're virtually fluent in Japanese, aren't you, Louise? But well, can you do well, it I mean, in I three months? There and did speak it after two years of working really hard, but I still definitely, that took two years of yeah. immersion. Yeah, it, it's not easy, but she tried she really really tried because she felt that this was where she had to be so after the three months ended these uh missionary folk said to her look gladys you're never gonna learn chinese we're really sorry but we don't want to pursue things with you you can't be a missionary you're not good enough just go home so she's like oh all right then that's what they said to her yeah they told us After to go home. After the training. Yeah. Because she couldn't do the Chinese. I mean, how many people who, could who do could? the Chinese? Right? Exactly. <laughs> how many people passed this exam? I'd love to know. But she was not deterred. Good on Gladys. In 1932, she cashed in all of her belongings and her life savings. And she bought her own passage on the Trans-Siberian Express, well, railway, over to China. And she just went. She was committed to the cause. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty brave back then. Oh, it really is. I mean, you've been on that Trans-Siberian route yourself, haven't you? Yeah. What's that like? And I, I needed Wakako with me. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're passing through so many foreign yeah. foreign towns, right? Yeah. But, you know, even to, to get to it, you've got to get to Russia first. Yes. You can't start it from England. So she had to get herself to Moscow. Yeah, she did. And and then she was detained by the Russians because there's all sorts of weird political things going on. Um, there always and, is. Right. Um, but she evades the Russians at this point um, with the help of some locals. And she somehow gets a lift from a Japanese ship. And the British consul have to help her travel across Japan to get another ship to China. So she's having a rough time here. And it's 1930s, so presumably there's like rats and poor hygiene on everything. Oh. Um, her her journey wasn't an easy one. Let's put it. I that wonder way. if at any point she thought, you know, what the fuck have I, I done? Reckon. Why I reckon. I reckon. Did I do this? Yeah, I definitely would have been thinking that the whole time. I mean, I wouldn't have gone, but <laughs> that's why she's a legend, and I'm not. And I'm sat in my spare room talking to you. That's <laughs> the difference. You're not a legend yet. You're a legend to me. Thanks, but sweetheart. there's still time for you to go on and become a legend. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so Gladys, after a long and very difficult journey, finally makes it to the place where she's going, where 
there's this woman, Jeanette somebody, she's called, she's an existing missionary who wants to start an inn, like a hotel for place for travelers to stay and they can look after these local travelers, well, travelers, but also they can spread the Christian message over the breakfast table. You know, that's their idea. As one does. Right, yeah. yeah. So, oh, have you ever thought about <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, the first night when she arrives there after this traumatic journey, I mean, I remember reading this bit in the book, actually, and it says, um, she says to the woman, Jeanette, where shall I sleep? And the woman says, oh, wherever you like, just pick a room. And she looks through all the rooms. And of course, they're all a very much open Chinese style. You know, it's not like yeah. a normal Western house. And she's oh, look at all this. So so she just picks somewhere and puts down her bed mat, bed roll. And uh, she says, oh, well, wh where do I get changed? Where can I undress? And the woman says to her, I really wouldn't bother if I were you. Just sleep in what you've got on. Um, and then when she wakes up in the morning, there's this description in the book that when she wakes up, the windows into her room are crowded with yellow faces. That's a quote, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but of course, all of the locals are just fascinated and curious to see this strange white traveller because there weren't many white but wasn't people. The woman Jeanette there. also a strange yeah, white traveller. She was, but they, you know, they knew her by this point, I assume, but they all wanted to come okay. in and peek at because so Gladys to describe her, she's she's small and um the book that's later written about her is called the small woman so she's short she's got short black hair she's not particularly attractive you know she's just a very normal plain woman um and you know i imagine they'd never seen anyone quite like her i don't know what this jeanette woman would have looked like but anyway they all wanted to come and look at her so they co-found after this the inn of the eight happinesses together um and the eight happinesses are the eight virtues which were originally given by confucius who was an early chinese philosopher that i don't know that much about um but that was named in order to give the local people confidence that they also had the same morals and uh -huh. philosophy as them so they do that so they start looking after travellers. She also gets a job as a government foot inspector. So what do you think she does? Is, uh, is she a like, podiatrist, a chiropodist? No, she tours the countryside to enforce the new law against foot binding. Foot binding. Yes, uh, yes. Great. Very good worthy. Lass. Yeah. And apparently she's really good at this. And she meets with... Um, quite a bit of success doing this which earlier the local women have, have resisted this idea because you know your mother your grandmother your great-grandmother they've all had their feet bound why shouldn't you and it was very hard to to persuade these women that actually this is a bad thing to do to break your child's bones uh -huh. at the age of four months or whatever it is that they do Oof. Yeah, so she actually does quite well. Um, but sometimes the um, these women or the families anyway would be quite violent against the person, the inspector or the woman that's coming round to check about the foot binding and talk them out of it. But she does well and she doesn't meet with any violence, which is great. In 1936, she becomes a national of China herself because she's fallen in love with this place with these people and she can see that she's doing good mm -hmm. and she's been there for what three years 
four years, years at this point. Okay. Yeah. And she becomes a real favorite with the locals. Um, she takes in orphans and looks after them. And she actually adopts some of them herself on her own to grow, to bring up these abandoned children. She even intervenes in a prison riot at one point and she advocates prison reform and she risks her life to help people in need. So she's doing all these amazing things to help the local people and they dub her Aiwede. Now, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that dreadfully wrong, but it's they've taken Aylward, her surname, and turned it into Aiwede, which means virtuous one. Okay. So she's she's much loved by the local people mm -hmm. and she's becoming she's revered. Yeah, revered. That's the word. In 1938, when you've got this deliberate flooding of the Yellow River, the region where she is is invaded by the Japanese forces and she has to escape with more than a hundred orphans that she's collected. Oh. Yeah over the mountains to safety and across the Yellow River. Now, this is no small feat. She's wounded for some reason that I couldn't find the reason of. I'd have to read the whole book again to remember. She personally cares for these like a hundred children. She takes them over the mountains. They're starving. You know, these kids are injured. The morale is obviously really low, but she gets them to sing and she tells them stories and she keeps them going to get them to safety in this really dangerous time. Now, I'm not a hundred percent sure whether this journey of theirs was before or after the deliberate flooding of the river but either way either way the the river the width of it is like it's it's like i don't know like a mile wide it's like you can't swim you not a hundred children could swim across it um and wow. it's fast moving as well so they get to the other side of the mountain they get like they've had this really hard journey they're all completely exhausted and a hundred of them get to the river and go, shit, how are we gonna cross that bastard? And so they all sit down on the ground and she's looking at the river like, oh, what am I gonna do now? Oh geez. And uh, someone says to her, well, but you told us about how the story in the Bible, there was that Moses guy and he parted the Red Sea. So surely your God will come down now and help you to part the Yellow River for us, Gladys. Gladys looks at them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, but I'm not Moses, guys. <laughs> so she's like, well... At this point, she's thinking, shit, I shit. wish I'd never gone on about those stories. Yeah, yeah, right? Uh, and also, oh, God, just generally, are we going to get through this, you know? Yeah. Like, what are we going to do? So she has them all sit down and pray. And they all just pray together, praying for a miracle. Please, God, let us pass this river. And then she's like, right, okay, what are we going to do now? Okay, well, let's sing a song. So she gets them all to sing a Christian hymn. I don't know which one it is. And the sound of a hundred orphaned children all singing this Christian song loud at the same time wakes up a couple of soldiers that are hiding in a boat downstream behind some reeds or whatever mm -hmm. and they hear it and they're like oh what's that what's that so they come out chinese soldiers and they head down the river 
And they're like, oh, hey, wow, what what are you guys doing here? And she's like, oh, we, we need to cross the river. And they're like, oh, fine, jump in our boat. So they all jump in the boat, you know, in stages, obviously. Yeah. And of course, all the children. Now the story goes that God answered the prayers by sending the military men in the boat to help them cross the Yellow River. Um, so this is one of the things that she's really famous for is this miraculous crossing of the Yellow River. I just think it's a really cute story. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, that whole going over the mountains thing. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. It's a it good story. It just feels so, like almost Sound of Music. Like yes. there, there should be a film about yes. this, very, this very moment, really. Yes, and there is, of course, which I'll come on to. <laughs> so... Um, this all happened she after this so she chooses to live in china um that's where she belongs now but she does come back to britain in 1949 when her life in china is genuinely like her life is at risk the army in china are in the late 40s because the cultural revolution and stuff they are actively seeking out missionaries to eliminate them so she would have been killed so she has to leave china and it's the only thing that makes her go so okay. she comes back to, to Britain, 1949, after the war. She's a completely unknown missionary. She's just a regular person at this point. Nobody cares about her. And then this guy, Alan Burgess, who's producing a series on war heroes for the BBC, for the radio. And he's heard that this missionary from China has just come back. So he goes to have a chat with her, like, do you know any war heroes over in China? And she's like, no. I don't, I don't know any war heroes. And he says... Does she I'm, not say, well, if you'd like to talk to me about my uh, heroism? <laughs> no, she massively downplays it. And I want to read to you this passage from the book that this guy, Alan Burgess, then went on to write about her, about the initial conversation that he w had with her, because it puts it way better than I could. So he says to her, well, well, what about yourself? Did you have a scrape or two? She says... I doubt people who listen to BBC would think that I've done anything interesting. <laughs> Didn't you even come into contact with the Japanese invaders? He pressed. Yes, she answered cryptically. It wouldn't be very forgiving if she told Alan Burgess that the Japanese had shot her down in a field outside Shishao, bombed her, too, in Yangsheng, strafed her near Lingshuang, too, smashed her on the noggin once with a rifle butt, too, <laughs> finally put a price on her head dead or alive. Well, some Japanese are very nice, you know, she volunteered. <laughs> Apparently your life in China was rather sheltered, he grunted dryly. Gladys had to offer the poor man something. Well, I did take some children on uh, to an orphanage near Siam. You don't say, he grumbled, not hiding disappointment. Kids, to an orphanage. Yes, we had to cross some mountains. Burgess perked up. Real mountains? Yes, I believe you would call them real mountains. The journey was made more difficult because we couldn't walk on the main trails. Oh, and then we had to get across the Yellow River, too. Isn't that the notorious river that drowns so many? It's called China's Sorrow. Burgess was more and more aghast as Gladys detailed her trek. His voice choked. You, you ran out of food. You had no money. Just you and a hundred kids, many of whom were toddlers, trekked for one month across mountains, across the Yellow River, ducking Japanese patrols and dive bombers. And at Cyan, you were diagnosed with typhus and pneumonia and malnutrition. Whoa. Yes, Miss Aylward. I think people who listen to BBC would think you've done something interesting. 
<laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. In 1949, um, she settles in Basingstoke in the UK for a bit because she can't go back to China. Um, what a letdown. She gives, well, she, I know she wanted to be over there, but she would have been killed. So she instead travels around the UK giving lectures on her work. And my mum, God bless you, mum, I'm sure you're listening. My mum went to go hear Gladys Aylward speak at a little church trip she went to when she was a small child. She saw her. Your mum got to listen to Gladys. Yeah, she did. And I said to her, we were discussing this a couple of weeks ago, and um, I said, well, what did she say? What was she like? And mum said, you know, I was too young, really. I don't, I didn't really know what was going on. I don't remember anything about it. I just, I know that I went. <laughs> what so a shame. A sh yeah, it's a shame. Um, so after Gladys's mum dies, um, she tries to go back to China, but she keeps getting rejected by the communist government there. So she goes to stay in Hong Kong, which of course Even is... Even though she saved their orphans. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's a Westerner. So they want to kill her at this point. Yeah. So she stays in Hong Kong, which of course is under British administration. Um, still and she finally settles in Taiwan in 1958 where she founds an orphanage uh, the Gladys Aylward orphanage and she works there until her death in 1970 when she's 67 and she's buried there in Taiwan wow so she never got to go back to China which she loved but she still stayed out there so her legacy so this Alan Burgess biography was published in 1957, detailing the whole of her life, really. And in 1958, just the next year, a film, a Hollywood film called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, starring Ingrid Bergman, was released. Have you heard of it? The Inn of the Six Happiness, no. Yeah. Um, Did Ingrid... they call it the Six, not the Eighth Happiness then? Yeah. And this pissed her off. She was not happy that they changed it. <laughs> um, and a few well, other there things. Was a, a really significant reason why they chose the Eighth. Yes, Eight exactly. is quite a significant number in in Chinese. That's what she said, and she was really annoyed about it. Um, she actually hated this film. She hated it because Ingrid Bergman is a blonde, tall, sexy Swedish woman. And uh. as I told you, Ingrid was a Londoner who was short, dark-haired, like didn't yeah. consider herself attractive, wasn't interested in, you know, being sexy or they anything. They tried to sex her up, right? They also change it about how she got there. So instead of it being about her... Um, selling all of her possessions and, you know, doing everything she could to get out there and the hard journey. They changed it to be an employer, a male employer, of course, condescending to write to an old friend to allow her to go out there. So she had to get the permission of a man to go? In the film, yeah. Yeah. Like, he had to help uh, her. Mm. Of course he did. Annoying. She can't have her own agency, can she? Exactly. I mean, I don't understand why you would change that. That's strange. No, because it's such an awesome story of how she got over there. Yeah. Um, they also changed her name from Away Day Virtuous One to True Love in Chinese Gen I. Oh, that's cheesy. Crap. And worst of all, so I didn't mention it before, but she had this friendship with this Colonel Linen character who was over there, um, who was Chinese. And it seems that they weren't ever in a relationship. They just had a really close friendship. Um, Platonic. 
I believe so. I'm not sure of the details, but in the film, he was portrayed as half European, which she found to be really insulting to him. Uh-huh. And she also felt that her reputation was damaged by obviously Hollywood embellished love scenes in the film. So she had never actually kissed a man in real life. So not only that, but the film ends showing her character leaving the orphans so that she can rejoin the Colonel elsewhere. So she just abandons the orphans. After getting them over the mountains and across yeah. the river, yeah. then she would just abandon them. Yes. For this guy, oh, yeah. what a terrible... Yeah. Bast- it's just bastardising the, the real truth, isn't it's it? It's no wonder that she was really upset about it. I mean, in reality, she never abandoned the orphans. She worked with them until she until she died, more or less. Um, Awful film. Yeah. So other sort of legacy of her is they did do a This Is Your Life show in the 60s sometime, which is quite cute. I've got a picture of that with her. The, do you remember This Is Your Life? Yeah, I yeah, do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, she got the red book at the end. She and... did. I remember the show, but I also remember never knowing who any of the people were because yeah. we were too young to really know these <laughs> celebrities. Um, I'd love it now. Yeah, probably. So... A secondary school in London was also named after her when she died. And there's a documentary about her. And there's, oh, there's even an animated DVD for kids uh, about her, which is cute. So that's Gladys Aylward. And And um, how did you stumble on her? Well, I've always known about Gladys because I read that book when I was a kid. I don't know. It was just around. I don't know if my mom had the book or what. So to compliment Gladys, who I think was just just so tenacious i just love her um i've also got a second woman who was doing similar not quite the same but similar work at the same time in the same area and her name is pearl buck have you heard of her ever pearl buck Mm, i feel like the name is familiar but i can't think why okay well you're doing better than me because i had never like there's no bells ringing anywhere for me about this woman she's from west virginia america so she's also a missionary um but a little bit different and she yeah i I think you'll find her interesting so she's born in 1892 okay and her parents were missionaries in china before she was born um, they're Presbyterian, typical American Presbyterian white people. I guess you would call them middle class, I suppose. Um, okay. They weren't rich, especially, but, you know, they were working missionaries. So she grows up in China. So she has an interesting education. She has sort of white tutors and her parents teaching her sort of typical Western education. But she also has this Chinese tutor who teaches her Chinese classics. And also she's got Chinese playmates. So she's wow, learning. She's lucky. Yeah. So she's bilingual, of course. Yeah. Um, and she even in her memoirs later, she describes how she lived in several worlds, one a small, white, clean Presbyterian world of my parents and the other, the big, loving, merry, not too clean Chinese world and there was no communication between them. So you can picture it, can't you? It'd be really interesting. Uh She, as I say, was born in 1892 and in 1899 to 1901, there was what's called the Boxer Rebellion and 
maybe you know about this, but honestly, this was new to me. Boxer uprising thing. The Boxer Uprising. Yeah, you've not heard of that either, have you? Good. No, I have not. (laughs) Okay, so basically what had happened was there was this increasing resentment by the locals against Christian missionaries who ignored their tax obligations and were basically corrupt. So the the locals rose up and became, there was this violent, anti-imperialist, anti-foreign, anti-Christian uprising. And of course, this very much affected her and her family. So all of their Chinese friends basically abandoned them. They couldn't have any more Western visitors. They were just on their own. They really were. Yeah, not a good time. So the family moved to Shanghai, but dad stayed behind because he's convinced no Chinese person could wish me harm. I'm here to do good. I mean, he sounds like a sweetheart. Um, If not a bit misguided. I think, yeah, probably a little bit. <laughs> um, but he does okay. So she's now hanging out in this Shanghai school and it's an expat school. So it's a white, you know, probably quite well-to-do school, private place. Uh-huh. And she's finding these other white kids, they are racist. Like they can't speak Chinese. They don't want to hang out with the local people. They're not even trying to integrate. No, they don't see them as equals. And in fact, they seem to be calling them heathens. So she's not happy. It, it kind of feels like probably how a lot of the Westerners behaved when they went to Africa. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, just she was in a, in a special, but not spe- I guess a different position because she'd had the privilege of growing up with Chinese kids as her playmates. Um, yeah. She saw them as their e- her equal. Absolutely. So she's had this um, great sort of combined education in that way. And she also reads loads. Um, and her father disapproves, but regardless, she reads the novels of Charles Dickens, of course. <laughs> um, she later said that she read through all of the Charles Dickens novels once a year for the rest of her life. I don't know how you could do that. Every like, They're so long, some of them, and there are oh. so many. <laughs> Every year? I just do not have that kind of appetite for Dickens. <laughs> oh, I do, but not the time. I don't have the time. So in 1911, she goes to a private US college. So she goes back to America okay. for three years to study. And she, at this point, she doesn't really want to go back to China, actually. You know, she wants to see what the world can offer her. She doesn't really want to be a missionary. But then her mum gets really ill out in China. So she decides she's going to go back anyway and she is going to serve as a missionary because she wants to be out near her mum to look after her. Mm -hmm. So she goes back out there, 1914, and she stays there and is still a missionary right up until 1932, in fact. And in 1917, she marries another missionary called John Buck. That's where she gets the surname. So at, at that point, she then goes to teach English Lit at the private church-run University of Nanking in China. Okay. And as a couple, they live on the campus. So she's English literature teacher. But the 20s are not a fun time for them. You might have heard of this illness. I haven't. So in 1920, they had a daughter, but she was born with, it's a really serious illness. I'm going to try and pronounce it for you. Phenylketonuria. Gosh, no. 
No, okay. <laughs> it's <sighs> it sounds like it's a combination of different really bad things and she needs a lot of full-time care. In 1921, so they've got this 1-year-old daughter who's really unwell. Mum dies now and dad moves in with them at the university. Okay. In 1924, they pop back to the United States for a sabbatical year for for John. And she now earns a master's degree, which is great. And they actually adopt a daughter, Janice, and then they come back to China. But in 1927, there's this thing called the Nanking incident is like this. The rape of Nanking? Oh, is that what it's called? Oh, you know about this. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's something called the Rape of Nanking. Oh, it could be. All I have here is that it was a confused battle that involved a bunch of like warlords and government type and military, random people coming together and uh, acting out against the Westerners. And several Westerners were murdered at this point. So that's not good. Um, but they're there and dad, again, because dad, God love him, still doesn't think that a Chinese person would hurt him, says, no, 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 we're going to stay here until the battle comes close. And when it all breaks out and the violence is on their doorstep, a poor Chinese family invites them to hide in their hut while their house is getting looted. And they spend a day terrified in hiding um, before they get rescued by American gunboats. Right. So... It's a rough decade for them. And they now have to go stay in Japan for about a year until they can come back. So she's lived some at this point. Yeah, she has. How old is she at this point? What is she, like 30? Something like, yeah, I think she's about 30. And this is the point at which she decides she's going to be a writer. She's seen some amazing things and lived through some interesting stuff in China that the Western world just doesn't seem to know about. So she thinks she needs to share this. And also she needs some money for the care of this young daughter who's really ill. And uh -huh. also seemingly because she's starting to feel lonely in this marriage and she wants a little bit of fund just in case she steps away. Right. Yeah, she's creating a bit of a get out card for yeah. herself. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So she goes back to the United States because they need some critical care for the daughter. And while she's there, she meets with a publisher called Richard Walsh, who agrees to publish a book for her if she writes it. So she goes back to China and she starts spending every evening desperately writing about her experiences over there. Around this time, she gets an invitation to give a talk at a lunch event of Presbyterian women in New York. So she goes... I presume she's getting paid for this. Um, her talk is titled, Is There a Case for the Foreign Missionary? And when she gives this talk, her answer to whether or not we need foreign missionaries... Is no. Yeah. So she tells this American audience who, you know, think that missionaries are a good thing... That uh -huh. she definitely welcomes ch the Chinese knowing about the Christian faith and sharing it, but that they don't over there need an institutional church that's dominated by missionaries who often don't know about China. They don't get China. They're ignorant about China and that they're arrogant when they go over there and they're trying to control it because they're missionaries and they know better. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of controversial. A lot of people would not like to have heard that. No. And worse, 
it then gets published. The whole talk gets published in the Harper's Magazine and people are scandalized. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1934, she leaves China and in 1935, she gets a divorce from the husband. And get this, the, the same day that she gets this divorce, she marries the publisher Richard Walsh. <laughs> she She's had that up her sleeve for quite some time, right? Yeah, she has. I read that. I was like, oh, you cheeky pearl. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Good for you. The same day. The same day the divorce yeah. comes through. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I know. So good for you. Um, they now live for 25 years in Pennsylvania, right up until 1960. So she's kind of left the Chinese, um, she's left China behind from 1934. So she's been there during the initial floods and all of that stuff going on. And she's, she's, she's trying to help people out there, but she's witnessing what's going on, the state of everything. She's writing about it in these books for the common consumption of you know, America. She wants Uh people in America to understand how hard it is. And she's the one who's writing sort of, I get the impression they're quite sort of easy to understand stories, but about the real hardships and difficulties that people, so for example, you know, I mentioned earlier how families were reportedly eating their children um, in the floods she wrote stories about that and they they were fictionalized to an extent but they were raising awareness in america of the genuine plight out there so that she could raise money for china for the relief funds and all of those things going on okay so it was really good work it was so she's now in pennsylvania and now she wants to go back to china but During the Chinese Cultural Revolution, she is now denounced as an American cultural imperialist. So eh -eh, China says, no, you're not coming back. Um, Yeah, she's one of those foreigners with the wrong kinds of views. Yes, exactly. They don't fit in and you're working against us. So no, thank Mm -hmm. you. In 1972, she gets the opportunity to visit China with Richard Nixon. But she can't go because... China have said, eh, eh. Um, we don't like you. Yeah. What and a apparently, shame. yeah, she's heartbroken over that. She's really heartbroken. Um, she really loves China and wants to go back. She wrote a novel in 1962, Satan Never Sleeps, which described the communist tyranny in China. I mean, that's a hell of a title, right? Isn't it? Satan Never Sleeps. I mean, mm. and it's also drawing on quite biblical language, right? Yeah. Yeah. Also true. After the communist revolution in 1949, she still, in fact, throughout the rest of her life, she still isn't allowed back in. And she wrote a number of different stories. I won't tell you the names of all of them, but she wrote on a lot of different subjects, including women's rights, immigration, adoption, missionary work, war, and the atomic bomb, um, and the general violence out there. And in... Yeah, so she did quite a lot. and She was prolific. Yeah. In 1938, she was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. It sounds like from the reviews, the way the critics responded to her writings, not everybody thought they were particularly great writings, but they the good thing about them was that they told stories that weren't necessarily otherwise known. I think that was the right. thing. They were informative rather than it being about the... 
the, the literary style. style or the yeah. yeah how good she was with language it was the story she was telling i think so and her ability to create these quite believable chinese families in her writings because of course you know she lived with these chinese families more or less so yeah. in that respect they were good and how many women before her had won the nobel prize for literature oh i really don't know the answer to that it's something we should totally look up though because i feel like we should probably cover anyone before this that's got it yeah. <laughs> um when they awarded it to her the committee were quoted as saying by awarding this year's prize to Pearl Buck for the notable works which paved the way to a human sympathy passing over widely separated racial boundaries and for the studies of human ideals which are a great and living art of portraiture, the Swedish Academy feels that it acts in harmony and accord with the aim of Alfred Nobel's dreams for the future. Okay. I thought that was nice. Mm. So she also won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, for one of her writings as well. Um, so she, you know, she did pretty well. And unfortunately, she died in 1973 of lung cancer. Um, and she's buried in Pennsylvania. But other, I, this is really cute. Instead of having her name written on her tombstone in English, only the Chinese, Chinese characters, yeah, Aww. are inscribed. That's cute, eh? Yeah, it kind of commemorates her her absolute love of China, right? That yeah. She, well, she was born there. More or less. I mean, she well, she moved there when she was five months, I think. But she she was brought... Her only playmates, other than her siblings, were all Chinese, and that was the mm -hmm. society she knew. Her formative years were all in China. Yeah. There's this one Chinese-American author called An Chi Min who said that she broke down and sobbed after reading The Good Earth, which is one of her books, for the first time as an adult, which she had been forbidden to read growing up in China during the Cultural Revolution. Um, oh, wow. She said that, that Pearl portrayed the Chinese peasants with such love, affection and humanity, and it inspired her to write a novel called, the Pearl, called Pearl of China in 2010, which is a fictional biography about Pearl Buck which sounds good. It does. And in 1999, she was designated a Women's History Month honoree by the National Women's History Project. And do you know when Women's History Month is? No, I am ashamed to say. <laughs> Me too. I didn't know until today, which is the 30th of March, that Women's History Month is March. I mean... We're, so we're this doing... whole month has been about the history of women. Yeah, and we missed it. And we're doing a bloody podcast about women's history. And I have never been more ashamed in my whole life of anything, I don't think. <laughs> we're going to have to make sure oh. we sort this out for next year. Yes, yes, we are. And I, I feel like I might also post a like almost public apology on Facebook for the fact that we didn't know this. So I wonder uh, if that's why International Women's Day is in March. Yes. Like what is what is significant about March? And I don't women? know. They probably just picked it because it's not when Christmas or Easter is. I mean, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, International Women's Day is, I think, probably happened first. And then they decided, you know what? It's not enough. We need a whole month. Let's make it the whole month when International yeah, we Women's Day one day yeah about women yeah so but you know now we women's know. history month wow yeah um so that's gladys elwood and pearl buck and i'll share some photographs of them um on our website and on the facebook page when we release this episode i know you know 
Western Christian missionaries are never the world's most exciting topic, but I feel like going to China in the 1930s was a big deal. And to come back and try and spread awareness when people probably weren't that interested and there was so much suffering going on over there, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like they deserve to be remembered for doing that. I agree. Those are really interesting stories. You spin a good yarn, Caroline. (laughs) They're not my yarns. They're uh, (laughs) these ladies' yarns. Um, But next week or next episode that I do, I've got a really exciting one up my sleeve who... um, who's much more exotic than these quite probably quite straight-laced ladies over here. All right, darling, I think we've concluded. So I'm just going to remind everyone that we have a Facebook page. We've got an Instagram account. We do have a Twitter account, I can confirm. Um, And if you would like to like or comment or do whatever those appropriate things are on any one of those, we would be absolutely bloody delighted. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Oh, if anyone even acknowledges it, that they're listening. Yeah, absolutely. All right, darling. Well, uh, I need to go get some more wine anyway. What about you? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) This beer is empty. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at the next episode. And thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to The Wife Who. Good night. Night, night. (laughs) Bye-bye. Good night.